through Zechariah uh, 9 through 11. We did chapter 9 last week. Uh, we'll just do a quick review as last week wasn't recorded. Um, so we won't, we won't go through it in the same level of detail, but um, at least a quick overview. So 9 through the 9 through 14, which is the last chapters um, of Zechariah, they are very, they're heavily messianic in their imagery, largely shepherd and king images. We'll see the shepherd come through very strongly tonight. Uh, and the, the last chapters are broken into two different sections. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1 begins the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and goes on to name some other nations. So it's the word of the Lord against the nations. And then chapter 13, or chapter, uh, let's see. 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord. Uh, so th- that, that uh, grammatical phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord against the first three chapters to the nations, the last three chapters to Israel. Um, and then chapter 9 that we looked at last week, it was, um, it was a detailed description of God uh, delivering Israel from her enemies and it was described as the sweep from the north of the Mediterranean coast down to the south, um, which was something that about 150 to 200 years after the prophecy, Alexander the Great did historically. He swept the coast from north to south, and we saw very specific prophecies even that came to pass in his conquest Um, The defeat of Tyre, this great city that had a fortress out about a half a mile off the coast. And and Alexander the Great actually basically built up the land in such a way that it still exists today. And he uh, ended up conquering Tyre. And then he went down south to Philistia um, and killed the king of Gaza by uh, tying him behind his chariot and dragging him through the streets. And that's in... Uh, verse 5, that the king of Gaza perishes. Um, and then ultimately, there was a protection of Jerusalem in verse 8, that, he, that God was going to camp around his house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. And then there, there's a break in sort of the conquest description, verses 9 and 10, and this announcement of the coming king. And here we would jump to the Gospels to see some of the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is where he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He's uh, just and having salvation. He's lowly and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Um, And so that took place when Christ rode into Jerusalem. Um, And then he sort of resumed the conquest imagery in verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Um, Even and. Ian brought some helpful things to mind afterwards to me. This, this may even sort of complete the, uh, the Greek conquest imagery where he says in verse 13 that he's bent Judah, his bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, um, in the intertestamental period as they sort of threw off some of the, um, uh, the oppression from the Greeks. So um, that, that's kind of, it's this... Long story of conquest from the Mediterranean coast, God's protection of Jerusalem, and then eventually the overthrow um, of Alexander and, and the Grecian nation at the end of the chapter. Um, 
in verses 16, in verse 16 of chapter 9, this will help us transition to the topic tonight. So he says in verse 16, the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his land. And in that verse, he contains both the metaphors of shepherd and king and brings them together in this very Davidic imagery of the shepherd king of Israel, the one who is going to fulfill from the line of David, the the eternal throne from the line of David. So he's sort of promising abundance at the end of chapter nine after this military deliverance. And that rolls over into chapter 10, verse one. In fact, I think it's probably a better division, a better chapter division would have been chapter 10, verse two. So we'll pick up um, this, this, I think, finishes the idea from chapter 9, where he says, request, you know, ask the Lord for grain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. And so we have a good reminder today of sort of what this looks like. You know, they pray for rain and there's just rain in complete abundance Uh, Remember the peace and safety in verse 17 of chapter 9. How great is its goodness, how great is beauty. Grain will make the young men thrive, new wine for the young women. And now there's rain and the clouds just open up and there's showers and it produces grass in the fields for everyone. So chapter 9 into chapter 10 verse 1, there's this unstoppable judgment. There's undeserved grace, unfailing protection and the king that's announced uh, in verses 9 and 10. So now, chapter 10 in verse 2, there's this transition. And chapter 10 um, contrasts the bad shepherds in verses 2 and 3 with the coming good shepherd announced at the end of verse 3 and then what he's going to do, a lot of his work and the result of his arrival in the lives of the people. So let's uh, glance through this here. He says, for uh, the idols speak delusion, uh, the diviners or diviners envision lies and tell false dreams, they comfort in vain. Therefore, the people uh, wend their way like sheep. They're in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the goat herds for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. So this, this sounds a lot like many of the pre-exilic prophets, where the problem is announced as an internal problem, and the problem is the leadership. And that's a very strong theme in chapters 9 and 10. So even now that they've returned, they're coming back, and there's a strong encouragement. Even at the beginning of Zechariah, there's a strong encouragement. Don't be like the ones that came before you. Don't be uh, like your fathers when they heard the the word, uh, that they rejected it and they experienced punishment. Well, here he's sensing a a similar pattern is beginning to emerge, that the leadership is continuing to practice uh, syncretism. I was, uh, even just in reading this and from last Sunday in Colossians, some of the dots, uh, dots were connecting to me that really what's happening in Colossae is, is not very different than what we've been talking about for so long in the Minor Prophets that the leaders of Israel did. That as they, like, they have everything in the prophecy and the promise uh, from Yahweh, and they have this covenant relationship, they should rest in that. It's sufficient. 
But then since, you know, even before Jezebel and all these other kings, they began to build um, false temples to these other gods and bring in other ideas and sort of build up their spiritual portfolio and in so doing, incur condemnation. So that's, re- that's really the Colossian warning, isn't it? That the, that the church, which is made up of these Jews and Gentiles from not very long after this time period, a few hundred years after this, uh, that they not do the same thing that the fathers did, uh, that the fathers of Israel did. Don't, don't syncretize in, in faith. So he, he calls out here the idols, these other, uh, that, the corrupt, that the corrupt leaders, um, because of how they are leading the people, they're, they're bringing in other ideas. They're saying, well, let's look to the future. Let's see what the future holds. So we're going to consult a fortune teller or someone who, who can look into the future. And, and what happens? They welcome ideas from, um, as Colossians describes it, you know, the powers, um, or the elemental powers, and that is idolatry. The idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies. They tell false dreams. And what that means is you, that you have a vain comfort, and it leads toward waywardness. It leads toward spiritual aimlessness. The people, the people don't know where they're going anymore. They're just wandering. Uh, Paul describes this in Ephesians, like, you know, being out like a baby in the ocean, like just bobbing to and fro as every wind of doctrine carries you about. We don't, we're not uh, doctrinally fortified because they're, they're welcoming a lot of other voices um, into their life. So um, there's a quotation for you. It says, because the, the diviners and dreamers conveyed messages that the Lord did not sanction, any comfort... Uh, that these misleaders offered the people would assuredly prove to be in vain. So uh, and that vain is our word from Ecclesiastes, though I think it's used a little bit differently in the majority of the Old Testament. It's you know, empty, meaningless, futile. It has nothing to hold or it holds nothing. It offers nothing. Once again, it's just because my mind's there, but isn't that the very thing that Paul says, the Colossians, that the philosophers are full of? It's going to be an empty promise. Um, so, again, God's holding the leaders responsible, and the result of their misleading is that his anger and judgment are kindled against them. So, the imagery of shepherds is very strong here. His anger, his anger is kindled against the shepherds. He's going to punish them. And then in strong contrast, after he judges them, then God's going to take the reins. You know, get out of the way. You've mishandled, you've misled, you've been oppressive for long enough. Now the good shepherd is here and he's going to lead his flock. So the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. So really strong shift in imagery, almost this metamorphosis from the sheep to now that God is here, I'm going to turn this sheep into this massive war horse, this invincible being that I'm going to ride into battle. And that transition moves us into verses four through the rest of the chapter. Um, a very strong military and deliverance imagery. So let's read through four uh, through the end of the chapter. He says, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. 
I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord their God and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their heart shall rejoice as if, with, uh, as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them for I will redeem them and they shall increase as they once increased. I will sow them among the peoples. They shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea and the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. Okay, so there's this strong deliverance language, and then it moves to the bringing back, the bringing together of the people um, in the second part of the chapter. So uh, verse four, now that we have Israel as not the flock metaphor anymore, but now this royal war horse that God is going to ride into battle, he gives three uh, messianic images, a cornerstone, tent peg, and the battle bow. So the cornerstone is one that we've talked quite a bit about. It's quite familiar to us that this is the foundational stone, meaning that it's the one that everything is built upon. It is the one that provides the plumb and the square. It is, uh, it is I mean, foundational is the right word to describe it. So Israel is built upon the Messiah. And then the tent peg could mean one of two things, and quite naturally to us, a tent peg is something you know that holds the corner of the tent, and that's one way it's used. The other way that it's used is in the middle pole of the tent, uh, there would be stakes or pegs on that pole that you would then hang things upon, whether it's like pots and pans or your coat or things like that, like, like we would use a coat rack, I suppose, uh, and that's another very common way that it's used. There's a reference in Ezekiel 34, not Ezekiel 34. Um, There's a reference in Isaiah 22, where Eliakim, who's David's son, is described as one of these tent pegs, as one that's posted on on the middle of the post. And uh, Israel's like hung upon him. But ultimately in Isaiah 22, he gives way and he falls I think the equal opposite picture here is that the Messiah, as the true Davidic, um, the true Davidic king, is going to be one on whom all of Israel rests. Like her success uh, hangs upon the Messiah, and he's not going to fall. So he's the sort of the foundation, and he's what uh, um, Israel rests upon or hangs from. Uh, and then from him, the battle bow. This is just exactly what it sounds like. You know, he's the military might, he's uh, precise, he's the great warrior. And so these three images together um, describe that without him, Israel has nothing. Israel is completely and totally dependent upon the success of the messianic figure here. From him is the cornerstone, the tent peg, and the battle bow. And what happens when he arrives... 
is that he kind of brings everyone else together, that with him he fashions Israel into uh, the greatest seer, the greatest fighting force that there ever has been, the most terrifying infantry, these, these Gaborim, the mighty men, the men on foot, um, who trample even uh, the cavalry of, of the enemy. So even in the face of a superior military might, they succeed. Because, I mean, and this is something that would be very unnatural in the military world, that a guy with a sword is going to take down another guy on a horse. Right? The guy on a horse has significant... Uh, advantage. But with the Messiah for them, then they like transform into these mighty military men who just tread down their enemies in the streets. And the reason that they're so successful is because the Lord is with them. That's significant throughout the entire Old Testament. They're only ever successful when he's with them. And they could do anything when he's with them. You know, you have Gideon defeating a far more significant uh, military force when God is with him. And then you have the equal opposite, that when God is not with them, even when they're stronger than the enemy, they fail. So the Lord of hosts visits his flock, which is the house of Judah. And when he does that, the flock succeeds. I'd like to point out, so in... mm, it, so in really 6 through 12, so 6 through the, the end of the chapter, instead of going through this in great detail, I'd like to point out uh, something that's happening in the, in the grammar, in the poetry, that really brings together the whole idea. So note, first of all, what God promises to do. There's this series of these I will statements. Okay, so let's just look through these. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back. Why? Because I have mercy on them. Then he goes down in verse 8. I will whistle for them and I will gather them. I will redeem them. I will sow them among the peoples. Uh, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Then I will strengthen them in the Lord and they will so that they walk up and down in his name. Okay, so you see, we've got this like, very significant series of God's declarations of what he is going to accomplish. And then just note what that produces. So because of all of these promises of God, then here's a series. They will be as though I had never cast them aside. Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. And... Uh, Their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. They shall increase as they once increased. They shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children. And they shall return 
And then here at the end, they shall walk up and down in his name. Here's sort of a side note description of, of, of the Exodus, basically a story of God's deliverance. So you just see time after time here that God's activity in, in strengthening and saving and accomplishing, uh, promising himself toward them, that it just produces all of these blessings in their life, this safety and security and that they come together and that they're strong and that they even have this intergenerational blessing, like it's going to last. Um, and I think the center point of all of this is verse 8. And verse 8 returns back to the shepherd imagery, which is significant, away from the military, and he says, I'm going to whistle for them. Like he calls them. This is very John 10 imagery, that the shepherd has a voice, and the sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. So he whistles for them, and he gathers them. And what is he doing? Well, redemption. <laughs> He's redeeming them. And this idea of purchasing back, of buying back um, in redemption comes through quite significantly in chapter 11 because the beginning of chapter 11 accuses these shepherds of selling them away. And now you have the true shepherd whistling, calling, bringing back his people, even restoring them so much that it was as though they, they had never been in Assyria at all. And uh, so let's, let's look here at 10 through 11. Because um, you see all of the these nations, so Egypt, Assyria, Gilead and Lebanon, Assyria, Egypt. So there's that the inclusio of Egypt and Assyria. <clears throat> so he's he's uh, in his restoration and his promise to to bring them to generational shalom, this generational peace and satisfaction. He uses some of the greatest um, military threats that they faced and even in, in history that they faced. So certainly Egypt calls to mind the Exodus. Um, and that, is, that imagery is used in verses 11 and 12, that he passes through the sea uh, and he strikes the waves and the depths of the river dry up. So that's very Exodus imagery. But this is something that's going to happen in the future. And so he, what he's... What he's calling upon is, well, let's see, let's circle it that way, um, that all of the affliction, all of the, you remember that the deep is used as this element of chaos in the Old Testament, that, that, that wherever the deep is, there is uncertainty and there is uh, anti-order and it's a, it's a terrifying place. And even the, the Israelites as very land-based people, that they have the promise of land, that they're not really seafaring people. There's just this whole uh, sort of design around the biblical theology that the land is a place of peace and the deep is a place of chaos. And so he says, ultimately, that God is going to pass through the sea of affliction this place of, of disorder and chaos, the place that they were stuck up against where they were troubled and he's going to just strike the waves and completely dry up the water. The depths of the river are dried up. And this comes through in Revelation imagery too, that the sea is dried up, the sea is no more. Primarily imaging, I believe, the 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 finality of no more chaos. 
a finality of rest in the land. And that's what he's promising here in 11. And that Egypt imagery is very clear. Now at the end of verse 10, why Gilead and Lebanon? Well, Gilead and Lebanon are the north east and the northwest border, uh, just outside of the borders of the land of promise. And they're very fruitful. They're known for abundance. And, um, and, and so in this promise to, to bring them back to the land outside of disorder and chaos, so much so that there's no more room found for them. The idea is that they're going to spill over the borders of Zion into Gilead and Lebanon, which was not, which is outside the original promised border. And he's just like, that's the nature of this abundance. That's the finality of this blessing. That's kind of the rest of chapter 10 is that, and I know we didn't walk through all the details, but this idea of the fact that the shepherd king is there and he's promised all of these things means that they're going to be, uh, they're, that they're going to come to pass. Okay, Ver, your chapter 11 is... Uh, a bit of a wild ride. Um, it, it has this extended description of Zechariah being used as God occasionally uses the prophets in sort of a, in a drama, in symbolism. And Zechariah symbols, the mess, uh, he symbolizes the messianic king in chapter 11. And God calls on him to uh, live out a certain way uh, to demonstrate the, the Messiah's position and his role in the future. And he does so with shepherd imagery, with leadership imagery. So there's, there's a few different distinct sections to it. And I, I will also say that a lot of this is very, is very hotly contested as far as how we're supposed to read chapter 11 and... Um, one of the things I'm realizing, I'm learning in these post-exilic prophets um, is that the fulfillment historically is more difficult to assign. It's more, it, we're a, a bit more tentative in assigning the historical fulfillment for it. And I think there's a good reason for that. The pre-exilic prophets, all of the, you know, Assyria, I'm raising up a great nation. I'm raising up Assyria. I'm raising up Babylon. Okay, Inside of the canon of Scripture, we have the fulfillment of those historical events. So we're like, and then Assyria marched, and they destroyed his northern kingdom of Israel. And then Babylon marched, and in these waves, they took away the southern kingdom of Judah as slaves. And then there's the restoration after 70 years. Like, that's all in the Scripture. Well, but part of the significance of the silence following these post-exilic prophets is that the histories, like we saw last week, like Alexander the Great, that's sort of scary to say. Like that, that we're a little bit more tentative to say, like, well, absolutely, you know, Alexander the Great came through and on this uh, Mediterranean coastal sweep. Like if that were recorded in, the, in those 400 years of silence, if that were recorded in another prophetic word, you know, then we would just be like, absolutely, right there. There it is. Thus saith the Lord. But because that's absent, we are a bit more 
hesitant. And the options are more open, and it's, it's a little bit more of a, uh, of a, of a nuanced conversation. So the, the, the fact that, um, and I've had, we've had, been having some interesting conversations about where the end of this, where, where we're going to end with the study in, in the Apocrypha, is, and, and this, these years of quiet. The fact that it's divine quiet should impact how confidently and how, well, like detailed we are in our assignment of all of the fulfillment of these things. Um, so th- there's some details in chapter 11 that are very hotly contested in the prophetic world. So we'll th- consider this a very cursory glance um, at Zechariah 11. Let's, re- let's just read it all through once, uh, and then we'll have another maybe 15 minutes or so to, to look through it. Okay, so chapter 11, he says, uh, one through three is the first section. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. A wail, O cypress, for the cedar has fallen because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. Uh, there is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruin. There's the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Jordan is in ruin. So you can kind of see that there's a transition that's going on here uh, from judgment toward this shepherd imagery. Thus says the Lord my God to Zechariah, feed the flock for slaughter, or that is um, marked, for slaughter, reserved for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So that's the first section. So, Zechariah, he feeds the flock for slaughter or marked for slaughter, in particular, the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, <clears throat> the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff, beauty, and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw it threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut, my, cut into my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And there's a definite break there. Then the Lord said to me, take, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. The end.
Okay. So there are a few distinct movements here. I believe the way we should read this is uh, symbolic and historical as well as prophetic. So Zechariah, I believe, is actually playing this role. God calls him to actually do certain things, to, to basically dramatize in the past what's going to happen with the Messiah in the future. So he begins with this strong condemnation of the present shepherds. Definitely a theme throughout all of the minor prophets and even is now arising as a theme in Zechariah. So thus says the Lord, uh, fill in this responsibility to lead and care for the afflicted people of Israel. This is verses four through six. Feed the flock that's marked for slaughter. So these people who are condemned, who have been sold, who have been misled, who have been oppressed, he says, care for them. Watch out for them. Why? Because their previous leaders, all of these other shepherds, they slaughter them, they feel no guilt, they sell them. So much, there's, so, there's just so much darkness here, even that they say, look, God has blessed me because they've sold the flock and they have money now and they fattened their belts and they're eating well and they, they have financial security and they're just like, look, God loves me as a leader, even though I got my money from afflicting the people. This is very pre-exilic language, the condemnation of those early leaders. Um, and so they say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich and their shepherds don't pity them. They, you know, they, they don't care for them whatsoever. And God calls on Zechariah to sort of take this role of leadership because God is separating himself from the people of the land. Even the afflicted ones, it seems. And he, and he calls on this pre-Messianic, this proto-Messianic leader to go and care for them, to feed the flock. And very quickly, uh, what, what happens is that the flock is going to reject Zechariah as a shepherd. They don't want to follow this even generous and kind shepherd who's for them. Um, and so uh, in verse, well, that, that's a little bit anticipating seven through nine, but in verse six says, for I, I'm no longer going to pity the inhabitants of the land. He says, it's time for judgment. Indeed, I'm going to give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They will attack the land and won't deliver them from their hands. So what's coming is another Assyria and another Babylon. There's a neighboring country, a neighboring king, a neighboring big shepherd that's going to come and take over. Perhaps historically Rome. That Israel's going down again. So Zechariah did his job. He did what God had called him to do. And he fed the flock that was destined for judgment. In particular, he reached out to and fed the poor. Isn't this very, that, that's quite messianic imagery, that he was there for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the sick. So in particular, he cared for the poor of the flock. And then this is very significant imagery in, the, in, in chapter 11. And he took two implements, 
um, of shepherds, which are staffs. And one of them he named Beauty, and the other one he named Bonds. Uh, the first one is describing, so beauty could also be favor or grace, and it represents a fundamental trait of God, a characteristic of God that is representative, that, that is represented in the covenant. So it's, it's uh, God's disposition to the people and his union with the people in the covenant. So grace, this favor that he set on them. And then the second one, bonds, not in a negative sense bonds, but in just like this connectivity. So union or uh, harmony, brotherhood, togetherness, this unity that they share, like a <clears throat> very, uh, very horizontal too in, na- in, in nature, the, the brotherhood nature of Israel. And so he takes these two staffs and he feeds the flock and he ministers to them. And then, uh, quite enigmatic verse, verse 8, he dismisses three shepherds in one month. And uh, the interpretations of this are in the dozens. <laughs> Who are these three shepherds, particularly historically? Uh, any, they go back all the way into the Old Testament to, from Moses into the future to, you know, the Maccabees and, and following. So is this Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you know, they're dismissed. Is this the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes? Are these the three shepherds? Is it the, maybe a little bit historical, the last three kings of Judah? Is it uh, some of the Persian kings? Is it Cyrus and Cambyses and Darius? Or like, who, who are these three? And, and I, I think in the story, and this is a tentative position, but I think in the story, it makes the most sense that these are like anonymous officials in Zechariah's day. That he views these other leaders, some have also said like the three offices, like prophet, priest, and king. And he just dismisses them because they're evil and they're wicked. So I, I think local leaders in Israel, the same, like these sorts of people, that slaughter and feel no guilt and who sell and don't pity and say, you know, God has blessed me because look, I'm rich. And he says, no, I'm setting them aside. Um, he, he hated them as false leaders and they hated him as a true leader. So in the future, in the, like, it, okay, in the past, I think it's probably just some local leaders. In the future, I can see that who is it primarily when, when the messianic figure comes onto the scene? Who are the other leaders that he's dismissing and, and they loathe him and he loathes them? Well, that makes sense that you have Pharisees and scribes and um, the Sadducees and these other religious groups, the, the leaders of the people. That resonates with me. That makes sense. Um, but historically, probably some other just peers in Zechariah's day. And what, what comes out at the end of chapter, at the end of verse eight and into verse nine is the rejection, the beginning of the rejection of Zechariah. So the leaders hate him and many of the people join the perspective of the leaders and they hate Zechariah too. And the result is that he says, okay, I'll walk away. I'm not going to continue feeding you, right? Let's feed the flock. So I fed the flock and now I'm not feeding the flock anymore. Let what is dying or let what is marked for slaughter, just let it go ahead and be slaughtered. Let's have it happen. 
and what is perishing perish. And the very dark imagery at the end here, cannibalism. He's like, let those that are left just eat one another. Just take it to its end. Um, it's, it's very dark. And so there's, there's a, this shift now of instead of this good shepherd has come, and he says, let me help you. Let me restore. Let me feed you, particularly the poor, those that have been oppressed. And they just join in with the voice of the false leaders and they criticize and they abhor the good shepherd and he walks away and it means utter destruction for the flock. Just this, it eats itself from the inside out. That, I mean, that's very messianic. That's exactly what happened, you know, in the gospels. And so now the staff imagery takes the next step. He says, so the first one, beauty. He picks up uh, the staff, which was the, the, the unity, the grace of the covenant, God's favor to the people. And he snaps his favor towards Israel so that, and here's where we really get the interpretation of, of what beauty means, of what favor means, so that he can break the covenant. In, when the staff was broken, the covenant is being broken. And he's like walking away from his favor towards the people. So it was broken on that day. The staff was and the covenant was. In the final sort of move of separation in the, in the historic metaphor. So I'm done being your shepherd because you've rejected me. And he breaks his promise of watching over them and caring for them and being for them and, you know, guarding them against these wolves and lions and so he says, okay, how about I take, just give me my last paycheck, basically, and I'll be done. I'll be out. If it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, okay, I'll, I'll be done anyways. <laughs> and so in really in, in quite mocking fashion, they weigh out for him, yeah, we'll get you your last paycheck. And they give him 30 pieces of silver. And this is a uh, very low price of a slave, basically. So they say, yep, we've got it for you. And it's like they give him five bucks, you know, just nothing. And so the Lord says to Zechariah, historically, give, that, give those 30 pieces to the potter, that princely price, just the sarcasm, like such an expensive price they paid that they set on me. So I did that. I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them to the house of the Lord for the potter. So of course that takes us in in prophetic form, it takes us to Judas and how as Jesus is moving away from Israel as shepherd, in this final act, the price of Christ is 30 pieces of silver. And it's just a ridiculous price to, to pay in order to betray Christ. And uh, even down to the details in Matthew 27, <clears throat> I'll just read this real quick. Matthew 27, 6 through 8. Um, I'll go to, down to verse 3. So Judas, his betrayer, seeing he's been condemned, was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned and by betraying innocent blood. They say, what is that to us? You see to it. So he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. Um, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And so they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field 
to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So uh, even down to the potter imagery, the price, this is all prophesied by God's symbol, symbolism of Zechariah, the rejected shepherd. Uh, then Christ, the, the rejected shepherd as well. And as sort of the, so he's um, moved away, he broke his, his promise of protection and blessing to them, asks for his final paycheck to walk away, gets an, a ridiculous sum, throws it, and now he breaks his second staff, which was bonds or unity. So what happens when the shepherd, the guard, the protector of Israel is removed from Israel. Now the brotherhood is broken. Now Israel is scattered. And I think this is a parallel to what we saw in chapter 10, verse 9, that in, even historically, so after Christ dies and then not long after 30, 40 years after, the temple is destroyed and you have the scattering of Israel. Um, what that is, is chapter 10, verse 9, that God is not just scattering them, he's sowing them, he's planting them among the peoples, among the nations. This is what happened to Israel. They got, you know, this is the diaspora, the, the, the scattering. He sows them among the peoples, and then there will come a day where they remember him in the far countries and they will live together with their children and they will return. And so what this describes is that this is going to be a little while in the future, isn't it? Like if we still, if we have the shattering, even in the post-exile group who's just come together and they're finally unified again, they're building the temple again and God says to them, you're going to be scattered. They're like, Ah, then that means that satisfaction and fulfillment and peace are further down the road. And that's exactly what occurred. Final little note here in verses 15 through 17. So the, the last word to Zechariah, as he says, the Lord said to Zechariah, next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand still. Instead, he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. So what he says is in this intermediate, there were these bad, wicked shepherds. Then there's a good shepherd. The good shepherd is rejected. And now there are reinstated, false, foolish shepherds. Now who this is, I mean, it's, it's stated historically in the singular or, or you know, poetically in the singular. Um, and so who is this? Well, maybe this is Herod. Um, maybe this is, you know, just great people, people who did great evil. Maybe this is Nero. Maybe this is some of these other Roman emperors. Uh, okay, perhaps. Uh, maybe ultimately this is, this is the eschatological figure. This is the Antichrist. This is the great evil shepherd who comes against the people uh, and just tears and destroys uh, yeah, perhaps so. I think historically you could look to a number of people and eschatologically you look to the great and terrible, the worst shepherd of all. 
Um, and in the intermediary, you look at all of these wicked leaders. I, I think it, this is similarly to, to how prophecy, I think the way that prophecy is working is that it is um, a grand example that is quite inclusive. You know, this one shepherd could be every evil shepherd. It could be all those that, that wound and destroy and are there for self rather than for service. And so that's the present <laughs> um, that I believe, and we, I think this, you would agree, that we live in a day of false shepherds. We live in a day of evil leaders, of people who are there for serving themselves uh, at the expense of other people. And... Verse 17 is a word of warning to them, but this is yet to be. This is yet to take place. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be against his right arm and against his right eye. His arm will completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. It's interesting that here in God's judgment, it doesn't just say he destroys him. He, he, it, he makes an example of him, sort of tortures him. <laughs> he takes out his strength, all that makes him, you know, able, his strong arm and his eye, his, his sight and his might, these are removed by the greater king in order to demonstrate, you know, in order to show his authority over, over these false powers. And so all of chapter 11, Zechariah patterns the person of Christ. He fits into this role that God prophesies and that Jesus fulfills, and that ultimately um, is, is yet to be completely accomplished. Right? We have the history of what Jesus did in his life and in his offering, even you know, like very Matthew, where it's like he offers to them the kingdom. He offers to be their shepherd, and they reject him. They spurn him, their Isaiah imagery as well. And so he removes himself and is betrayed for this money, and he goes even to the cross, whereas Colossians argues, like, he does destroy the powers. <laughs> he does humiliate them on the cross. Um, but the experience of this, our experience as the flock of God in the final gathering together of the people and the reinstatement, this full fullness of the family of Israel and the, the deepest and final expressions of the covenant where it's as though the, the shepherd's going to reform 
bring back these staffs that have been broken. And he's going to express fully and finally his covenant favor upon his people. And, and these bonds, the unity of the family of faith is going to be reinstated and it will be bigger and better than ever before. And it will be as though Assyria and Babylon and Greece and Rome and none, like none of that had ever happened. Like the, the tears are wiped away and this restoration, this beautiful future that we will experience without any more um, wicked shepherds. They will be fully and finally cast away and destroyed. So uh, it's, it's quite powerful imagery um, and hopeful imagery at the end of the day, but certainly it tells a difficult story um, of Israel's past and present. So um, any thoughts or questions on chapters 10 and 11 before we conclude with prayer? Uh, see, this idea of wickedness, you know, um, very similar to uh, here, the beginning of four. So um, I was actually thinking about this a little bit. So it is ultimately what they're doing temporally benefits them, right? Blessed be the Lord for I am rich. Looks like it works. This is quite Proverbs. This is the, you know, the guy who steals and wounds in order to make his treasury, his per, a big purse. This is some of the Psalms that say, like, look at the abundance of the wicked. Um, but then when you go to the house of God, then you see their end. And what is revealed in Psalms and Proverbs and here is that it is folly. What they're doing is not just, you know, breaking the law, but, well, it worked. No, it didn't work. Ultimately, it was stupid as much as it was wicked. So I I think that element is in there. Like they are fools for not fearing God, for thinking that they could march into God's flock, take advantage of them, and God wasn't taking stock of it. God wasn't going to take revenge. God wasn't going to shut them down. Like that's a, a very arrogant, foolish thing to do. Thank you guys for being here tonight for, this is silly to say, but it reminded me of the Oregon Trail. You had to choose, you know, are you going to forge the river? Are you going to float the river? You all forged the river to be here tonight. So thank you for being here. Let's pray.